So you can see there in your order of worship, I'm going to preach on verses 21 through 28 of Matthew 15, but just to set the context, I'm going to read from the beginning of 15, so a slightly longer reading, but then of course focusing on verses 21 through 28. Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 1. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant word for you and for me this morning. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. 
Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Almighty God, we ask that you would be powerful now through an activity filled with weakness. One man's weak attempts to speak, to explain, to unpack, to proclaim left only in weakness apart from your spirit. So Lord, would you move and would you speak? And would you open my lips not only to speak the truth but open our ears to hear it, open our hearts to receive it and shut us up against any error, any half-truths, any lies or deceptions, Lord. Help us. Move mightily in this time to give us not just new understanding, but renewed, reinvigorated faith in Christ Jesus our Lord that we might love Him more deeply and joyfully live in His light. We ask in His precious name. Amen. Amen. Two men went up into the church to pray. One, a member, regular attender of the church, and the other, one of the local, well-known, drug-addicted panhandlers. Everybody knows him. Everybody drives past him frequently on the street. Now, the member comes in, walks to the front of the sanctuary, and with head held high, prays something like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Not like these thieves and liars, these adulterers and sex addicts, or even like that man back there. I serve here at this church. I teach. I give generously. I thank you. But the panhandler stays in the back. He falls to his knees. And he drops his head in his hands. And he begins to sob. And he cries out, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. I deserve nothing. I need grace. Be merciful to me. Help me. Now, obviously, I've not made this story up. (laughs) Hopefully, you understand that. I've just told a paraphrase of Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee and the publican, the Pharisee and the sinner, however you might know it. And the contrast is obvious, and it's meant to make a pretty clear point, isn't it? Many who think they are on the inside for any number of reasons are actually out. Because you remember Jesus' concluding word, his summary, his principle from the parable, right? It's the sinner, so-called, who walks away justified. Why? Because they came seeking only mercy. Not in their own merit, not by their own performance, not self-justified and self-righteous in God's presence. And I love to point out that that Pharisee in that parable is the best-looking Pharisee we have in the Gospels. He's thanking God at least, right? But the point is, be careful how you classify who are on the inside 
and who are left on the outside. Don't trust appearances. This part of Matthew's gospel, and the reason I wanted to read all of chapter 15 is because I think the portion of this gospel that we read is actually an extended narrative of events that actually occurred, of course, that illustrate, that present to us the same principle Jesus is teaching in that parable. Who belongs to God? Who has God's favor? Who are the righteous? Who are the ones who are of God? For the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite and authorities, the answer is obvious. It's the clean ones. The Pharisees are the quintessential clean ones. If any people belonged to God and had His favor, it was them, right? Or so they thought. In the first part of the chapter, as we read, Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. You care only about the outside of the cup. You care only about the appearance. You cling to your traditions, but you reject my Father's actual commands. You have substituted God's standards for your own. You may recall when Jesus says, If only you understood what it means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. When we come to the second part of the chapter, we see again in true flesh and blood lived out this parable in this Canaanite woman. We'll see the story move in three parts. An unclean woman, an uncomfortable silence, and an uncommon faith. An unclean woman in verses 21 and 22. Jesus in verse 21, moves away from Israel, gets out of the region of Israel, where the Jews, of course, are, and goes into the region of Tyre and Sidon. These two large cities were 30 and 50 miles to the north, kind of northwest of the Sea of Galilee. And he said before in his ministry that people in these kinds of pagan places, they would repent and bow down before him if he were doing in their midst the kinds of works he's been doing in Israel, where he's been rejected so much. And it turns out he's right. And we shouldn't be shocked, but if, as is so important to do when you read through the Scriptures, to try to surprise yourself, try to pretend you don't know what's going to happen, try to put yourself in the position of the early readers or of the disciples living this out, if you're reading honestly, if you're with Jesus... These events would be shocking. In fact, when Matthew introduces this woman, he introduces her as a Canaanite. Now, to refer to her as a Canaanite, we don't pick up on this right away. But to refer to her as a Canaanite is a bit outdated. It's anachronistic, as we would say. It's like referring to a British person as a redcoat today. You wouldn't do that. They were redcoats during the Revolutionary War, right? That's not the case anymore. It would be silly to refer to them that way. Matthew wants us to understand, though, that this woman is descended from the Canaanites. That label may not be frequently used anymore of these people, but it was used to refer to those ancient pagan people who dwelled in the land that Israel had to cleanse to drive them out, right? The enemies, the original enemies of God, the unclean people, 
Matthew wants you to see the contrast. We've just dealt with the Pharisees, the clean people. And here is a Canaanite woman, a representative of the unclean people. And if her identity, scandalous as it is, doesn't shock us yet, her behavior is even more offensive. She's following Jesus and his disciples, crying out. The language is emphatic. She's crying out, shouting repeatedly. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter's severely oppressed by a demon. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. She's just following them around, crying out repeatedly. It's an ongoing, never-ending thing. Shouting and shouting, begging and pleading and crying. Of course, many of the commentators love to say what we know from experience. I know fathers love their children. I'm not contradicting that. But there's something about a mother in anguish over her child in deep peril. This is a mother in deep, deep distress. Just following. Help me. And then if her behavior doesn't unsettle us, Jesus is about to. So move to verses 23 and 24 in this uncomfortable silence. Matthew tells us that Jesus did not answer her a word. Again, emphatic language. The silence is deafening. Because it's contrasted not only against her loudness, but against the backdrop of his own pattern of behavior, isn't it? It seems like every other time before this, when someone comes begging to Jesus, what happens? He acts, he moves, he delivers, he heals, he feeds, whatever. In fact, sometimes, and we'll see in just a few verses if we were going to read on, Sometimes he acts without any prompting at all. He's moved, he's stirred by compassion for the crowds or for some individual. And so to have a woman shouting after him and him just pretending he doesn't even hear, this is very out of character for you, Jesus. His silence is deliberate. It's dramatic. It's obviously intentional. What's he up to? And eventually, the disciples add their own request to the woman's, don't they? His silence and his unresponsiveness probably puzzled them a little bit. And so they actually beg Jesus. And the language, at least in the ESV, the way it's translated, says, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. I'm going to ask you, slow down. Because if you read too quickly, it sounds like they're saying, get rid of her, she's annoying, and we want her gone. Okay, part of that's true. She's no doubt frustrating, she's annoying. To have someone constantly shouting would wear on anybody. But the text doesn't say, get rid of her, especially not, and I hate to do this, but in Greek, it struck me that the word used here is most often translated when it comes up in the New Testament as release. It can mean set free. And the commentaries back this up if you don't want to trust the authority of this Greek scholar. 
which I would encourage you not to. <laughs> but the commentaries back this up. It's not that the disciples are saying, drive her off, make her go away. After all, they could have done that themselves. I mean, they were kind of doing that with the children in another story, right? They're keeping the children away. And Jesus says, no, no, let them come to me. They don't really need to beg Jesus to make someone go away. They would, however, need to beg Jesus to give her what she's asking for so that then she'll just finally go away, release her, Jesus, set her free, send her away. She's come to you asking for something, just give it to her. And if you're not convinced yet, that understanding is really the only way to make sense of Jesus' reply in verse 24. Look at it. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What's he saying? Sum it up in one word. He's saying no. He's saying no, I won't do what you're asking me. He's telling his disciples, no, I will not release her. I will not send her away. He's not even answering or addressing her in any way yet. You just try to imagine this happening. He's responding to the disciples. And the reason he gives is simple enough. My mission is to seek and save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she certainly isn't one of them, is she? Or is she? There's Bible scholars in the room here. What does the name Israel mean again? Don't say it if you know it. But what does the name Israel mean again? Why did God change Jacob's name to Israel? Well, back to the story, no doubt. She hears Jesus say this to his disciples. And she may have been filled with hope for at least a few fleeting moments while she thinks, oh, the disciples, they're interceding on my behalf, his disciples. But he shuts all those hopes down so quickly. And what now? What's she going to do? And here we see that Jesus' refusal to act draws out and puts on display this woman's uncommon faith. It's dangerous to speculate about Jesus' intentions or motivations if something's not clearly said. But I'm at least convinced that the reason for Jesus' actions or inactions so far, because he wants this woman to put on display her beautiful, beautiful faith. And we see her uncommon faith starting in verse 25. How does she respond? She approaches him. And Matthew tells us she kneels or she bows before him. It's the exact same word used elsewhere throughout the New Testament for worship. To bow. That's the action associated. And what does she say? Well, Jesus, you've got to understand my situation. She's been possessed for this long and I just don't have anything else to... Jesus, I've I've done my best. I've I've found the law of the Jews and I'm trying to obey and I'm trying to be a righteous person and I'm willing to become an Israelite. She doesn't bargain. She doesn't make any offers. What does she do? She offers nothing. Just the simple plea, Lord, help me. And at last, at last, he addresses her. He looks at her. But it's not the tender moment you hope for, is it? He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
I mean, this is widely regarded as one of the most scandalous things, offensive things Jesus says in his entire ministry. And commentators do some things to soften the blow, and I think it's not entirely wrong. The word for dogs here, we always say dogs when they're talked about in the Bible, not the cute furry pets that you have at home. They're the wild scavenger mongrels, right? Well, he actually doesn't use that word for dogs here. Not the scavengers that roam the streets in filth and scrounge for scraps. He is actually referring to dogs which have masters. But the point, nevertheless, is that it's not right for me to bless you because it's wrong for the master to feed the dogs before the children. And you, madam, are a dog. You're outside. Israel, they are my children. I may be master over everyone else too, but the rest are dogs. It's kind of how we would maybe understand it. And it's wrong to feed the dogs before the children. Hopefully everyone in here, you feed your kids before you feed your pets, right? At least you prioritize your kids over your pets if someone's got to go hungry. And many commentators do wonder if Jesus says this with kind of a warm smile because he knows he's provoking her a little bit. But regardless, whatever Jesus' tone or facial expression, this is, this is fascinating. The woman does not back down. She doesn't bat an eyelash. She doesn't hesitate. Think of all the times Jesus has had a showdown with an opponent or group of opponents and shut them up. He wins every time, right? He leaves everybody in silence, stunned silence. They just can't outmaneuver him. And he says it's not right for the master to feed the dogs before the children. And she doesn't miss a beat. She doesn't hesitate. She says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. It's incredible. She doesn't argue. She doesn't dispute his charge. She doesn't claim to be anything other than what he said. She just continues to seek mercy. She concedes the point. Yes, Lord. She agrees. And nevertheless, she says, even dogs get crumbs that fall from the table. She makes no claim to any rights. She doesn't claim to belong to Israel, to have their rights. But surely there are crumbs for outsiders from this most merciful master. Surely, Jesus, you being the most merciful one, And with that, she becomes only the second person to be praised for her faith. And you remember the other one, the Roman centurion. Now, moving from the narrative itself, I think it's helpful to reflect on it under three headings. And the first is, again, what I highlighted at the beginning, this, this outside-inside Emphasis, And you could understand it in two ways, right? There are those perceived as being outside and those perceived as being inside. And Jesus wants to confront us with our own categorizations of who belongs where. And the other way to think of this inside-outside issue is it's not the outside that matters, but the inside. It's not the outer appearance that is of importance. It's the inner heart, the inner person. 
But here what the story shows us so beautifully is that the unclean, so-called, the outsiders, so-called, are not beyond the reach of God. Because they're not forbidden the gift of faith. J.C. Ryle, great pastor, I know Michael loves him, I think it was 19th century in Liverpool, England, he ministered, has written many things, anything you can find by him is worth reading. He says that it is grace, not place, which makes people believers. And this truth, I think, offers us correction and encouragement. Correction in that, remember what God says to Samuel? And remember, Samuel is probably the most righteous, godly man alive at that time. And Saul's kingship has already failed, and Samuel's been sent to Jesse to anoint one of his sons as the new king. And even Samuel is falling into the trap of anointing the one that looks like he should be king. Starts with the oldest and just kind of works. And remember what God says to Samuel? Man looks on the outer appearance. God looks on the heart. And we jump to all kinds of conclusions about people based on any number of things. Their background, what we know of it. Where they're from get very specific or just vague, right? Whether you're from the north or whether you're from the south or whether you're from Charlotte or whether you're from Rock Hill or whether you're from further out. We jump to conclusions about people based on what their family is like. Many of you in here knew what it was like to have older siblings go through school before you and then when you got class with a teacher, they said, oh yeah, you're so-and-so's little sister or you're, oh, you're, you're his little brother. Right? You already had a reputation that preceded you because of your family. We jump to conclusions about what someone does for a living. We jump to conclusions about people because of what they might struggle with. We jump to conclusions about people because of what church they go to. And on and on we could go. But the point is, we are far too quick to write off outsiders. I'm not talking about making reasoned, careful judgments. I'm talking about jumping to conclusions based on something you see and saying, ah, well, now because of that, I know all I need to know about that person. And when we do that, we're no better than the Pharisees, the ones who rejected Jesus. Bad company to be in. But this outside, inside truth can also be a wonderful encouragement to us. Because returning to Ryle again, he has this beautiful thing to say. Let us not despair of anyone's soul merely because his lot is cast in an unfavorable position. It is possible to dwell in the coasts of Tyre and Sidon and yet sit down in the kingdom of God. Don't think that just because of where someone is, where they've grown up, where they're stuck, they're out of reach. Because again, no one has forbidden the gift of faith and no one is beyond the reach of the arm of God. This woman, a Canaanite, an outsider, an unclean one. I mean, she knows from the start that Jesus is Lord. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. She sees and knows and adores what the Pharisees 
in their self-righteous arrogance and hardness of heart are so unwilling to see. Even with all their religious advantages and opportunities, they're blind. And she, with no religious advantages or opportunities, sees all she needs to. She sees everything. She sees the Lord. May we never jump to conclusions and quick prejudicial judgments with anyone who comes across our paths. And likewise, may we never despair over the condition of someone thinking they are altogether lost. May we have open eyes to see needs, open ears to hear their cries for mercy. And may we be quick to offer Christ, who is the only hope, the only hope, the only source of grace and mercy and healing and help and salvation. After all, we too are no better than dogs, right? Or as you've maybe heard it said famously, we're nothing but beggars telling other beggars where there's bread. And that leads us to the second observation here. Mercy, not merit. Those who would receive any blessings from God will receive it because of His mercy and not because of their own merit. We see that so clearly here. Every blessing from the Father comes to us by mercy through the Son. Jesus Christ's merit, not our own, provides our fitness for every single blessing. And we even receive Christ's merit as a gift. Even that is not something that we earn. Given us by mercy through the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to call sinners, not the righteous. He came to seek and save the lost. He's the physician for sin-sick souls. And those who think themselves well, no matter how foolish and feverishly ill they might actually be, are going to gain no benefit from a doctor because they think themselves absolutely fine until they collapse dead on the ground because they never went to seek the help that they so desperately needed. They have no understanding. And the problem with the self-righteous on display in the Pharisees is that they'll always believe they have some claim, some right to God's blessing because of their hard-earned so-called righteousness. And they miss the most essential truth of all, that the righteousness they need, any righteousness they could hope to have, must be a gift by God's mercy. It's not our merit, but mercy which moves the hand of God to act on our behalf. Not our merit, but His mercy. And she knows that. The Canaanite woman, unclean as she is, understands every good thing she would receive from God must come from His mercy. And so she receives richly and abundantly. And we can confront our own practice with this and ask ourselves, how do you approach God? As a vending machine? 
And I'm sure you've heard this challenge before from this pulpit or elsewhere. Do you approach God like a vending machine, as if living the right way, entering the right combination of sin avoidance and good deed doing? You do that and God is most certainly going to bless you and dispense to you whatever you need and seek and desire. And you'll be oh so thankful you're not like those other people. That family down the street from you, what a mess they are. Did you hear about what just happened? Or your cousin with that addiction. Oh, your aunt and your uncle really messed that family up, didn't they? Thank God you didn't grow up in their family. Or again, those people who go to that church. Because of your goodness, right? In this passage, and obviously all the scriptures are confronting us, that's not Christian faith. That's not faith in Christ. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. That's absolutely true. But he gives because of his grace, not because of our self-assessed goodness. And she gets it. She's owed nothing, deserves nothing, but she pleads by faith on the basis of his mercy. Lord, help me. She doesn't puff up and defend herself in response to his words. And the Pharisees are offended that Jesus would dare say that their insides are unclean. And we have to be careful. Because we good church-going Christians have a tendency to become the comfortable and confident self-righteous. And may it not be so. May we continue to exalt Christ as we humble ourselves before Him repeatedly, constantly, faithfully. May we be like this outside of this Canaanite woman, our hearts ever crying out for His mercy as we do strive for righteousness, but we never rest in it, never rest in our own, but instead plead for more of His. And the final observation here, faith through affliction. As I've already pointed out, Jesus praises this woman for her faith. It's very rare. A Roman centurion and a Canaanite woman. And she shows us in this short, short story of how faith springs out of every affliction. If there is faith. Faith, if it's there, perseveres through every obstacle, every opposition, great or small. I mean, Jesus just throws out roadblocks to this woman's request again and again, right? Silence. And then his initial reason for inaction. But what does she do? She presses on because of her faith. He does this that she might have the opportunity, I've already argued, to showcase her faith, her true faith, because that's what true faith does. It perseveres. He wants to show to the disciples the contrast, not only between her and the Pharisees, but between her faith and theirs. This is faith that presses on. This is faith that follows Jesus constantly, cries out to Jesus, clings to Jesus. And I I have to quote Ryle one more time. By the time I'm done, you're going to wish you just read him 
instead of coming here. But he highlights this beautiful fact that it's actually the severe affliction this woman is suffering under which strengthens and solidifies her faith. He says that affliction sometimes proves a blessing to a person's soul. That trouble brought her to Christ, taught her to pray. Without it, she might have lived and died in careless ignorance and never seen Jesus at all. Surely it was good that she was afflicted, as the psalmist says in 119. And he goes on, there's nothing which shows our ignorance. I know he says this in love, and I say this to you in love, Christian, I do. There's nothing which shows our ignorance so much as impatience under trouble. We forget that every cross is a message from God and intended to do us good in the end. Trials are intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, to drive us to our knees. And listen to how he says this. How can you disagree? Health is a good thing, but sickness is far better if it brings us to God. Prosperity is a great mercy, but adversity is a greater one if it brings us to Christ. Anything, anything is better than living in carelessness and dying in sin. And so I just ask gently, respectfully, lovingly, Christian, are you sick? Are you in some affliction? Are you suffering in some trial? Do you wonder why you cry out to God for some answer or better for some resolution, some mini salvation from your misery? Can I just humbly propose to you, is it possible that you are being afflicted so that your faith would be strengthened that you would cry out to Him, that you would cry out to Him, that you would cry out to Him? Is it possible that your affliction has been given so that you would be dependent on Him? Because otherwise, you may run carefree. That's why Job went through what he went through. And notice, it's not even that Job deserved the suffering. I'm not saying you deserve the suffering necessarily specifically. Obviously, all suffering is a result of sin. Generally, yes, we deserve it because of our sin. But specifically, this affliction, this sickness, this problem, I don't know that. But what I do know is that when you get to the end of the story of Job, what happens? His faith is strengthened. What does he say? I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And it was all worth it. So I ask you, humbly and gently, I push, have you gone to Jesus? Are you going to Jesus? Are you running to Jesus? Clinging, crying out to Jesus. Have you really gone to Him in whatever your trial? Because if you do, you will not come away empty. I'm not promising healing. I'm not promising resolution to the problem. 
You may not receive those things that you do long for. But is not Christ himself the grace and the peace that he supplies, the knowledge that you can rest in his perfect love for you despite whatever the suffering, the assurance that his power is made perfect even in your weakness, isn't that infinitely greater? Or do you hesitate? Do you fail? Do you refuse to go to him? Do you hold off? Do you linger because you doubt? You doubt he'll answer as you wish, if he'll answer at all. And don't you see that that's not faith? That's the problem. You're right. He he won't answer you because he can't, because you won't even go in faith. Faith runs to him shouts after him, grabs hold of him, refuses to let him go until some blessing is received. Like Jacob. Remember Jacob? It all goes back. What does Israel mean? Remember Jacob wrestled and would not let go. Jacob spends the rest of his life with a limp. He lost the match. And again, I'm not sitting here saying God's going to guarantee your healings and solve all your problems. But if you go to him in faith, you cling to him and cry out to him, Christian, do you not understand he will bless you perhaps far more greatly than any healing you could imagine? Peace that surpasses understanding. Our problem is not that God does not hear It's not even that he's silent. It's not that he's unwilling or unable to bless. Our problem, I would contend most often, is that we're not willing to wrestle with him. Do you know what it's like to wrestle with God? Have you done it? Are you doing it now? And if not, if not, May I propose to you that whatever present affliction you're in or whatever affliction lies around the corner, because it's coming, right? It's always coming. May I propose to you that that affliction is an invitation to wrestle with God, to cry out to Him and to cling to Him. And if you're already there, may I encourage you to wrestle on and continue crying out. Continue to cling to the Lord Jesus. He will answer. He will. We pray. Father, we thank you that you hear our prayers. You love us. You answer not always as we would deem desirable, but as you see perfectly fit in your perfectly wise love, your perfect love for us. Help us, Lord, to see and to recognize the ways that you can work in our hearts. You can work perfectly in our situations, sovereignly, to resolve whatever difficulty or distress we're in. But you can also work in our hearts, changing us from the inside out, so that even in the midst of distress, we can know stillness, calm, peace, and assurance. Would you love us in this way? Lord, invite us to wrestle and give us the perseverance, the faith to wrestle well, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.